This is Trek FM. Hailing frequencies open. This is your Trek FM Hyper Channel for Sunday, June 1st, 2014. I'm Christopher Jones, and we have two stories for you today. Celebrating 30 years of the search for Spock, and teleportation could become reality eventually. First up, after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan breathed new life and excitement into Star Trek in 1982. Fans were eager for the next adventure of the USS Enterprise. I know I was, but there was just one problem. The ship would be setting sail without a key member of her crew, Spock. Fortunately, we only had to live without our favorite Vulcan for two years before Harv Bennett gave him back to us in 1984. And as hard as it is to believe, It's now been 30 years since Kirk violated orders and returned to Genesis. Now, June 1st isn't known as Planet Forbidden Day, but it should be. It was on June 1st, 1984, that Star Trek III premiered. And to commemorate the occasion, StarTrek.com has provided a trivia field look back. And I'm not going to tell you everything that they put in their article, I'll give you a link so that you can go read it. But I did want to share some background on the film. And also find out from you what you remember about it. You know, I remember Star Trek III premiering very well. I used to go see all the films as they came out in the theaters. In fact, it was something that my grandmother and I did together. From The Wrath of Khan forward, we saw every Star Trek movie together as it came out in the theater. Was just one of our things. And she wasn't a big Star Trek fan or anything. It was just something that started when The Wrath of Khan came out and I was 10 years old. And we just did every year. So, The Search for Spock was, it's one of my favorite of the original series movies, actually. And I know a lot of people find it to be slow, but it's one of those middle stories, like The Empire Strikes Back in the original Star Wars trilogy. Which is also possibly my favorite of those movies as well. I like the middle stories. I like the, the character moments. I, I like in the search for Spock the fact that Kirk is willing to throw everything away to go and save his friend. And there are just a lot of touching character moments in that movie. Now, one thing about the search for Spock is that it was Leonard Nimoy's debut as a feature director. And prior to this, Nimoy had directed four television episodes, including the T.J. Hooker episode, Decoy, in 1983. So he was still working with his friend William Shatner there. And then in 1984, he got to direct The Search for Spock. After that, Nimoy went on to direct Star Trek IV, of course, as well as Three Men and a Baby in 1987, The Good Mother in 1988. Funny About Love in 1990, Holy Matrimony in 1994, and the Deadly Games episode Kill Shot in 1995. So a steady stream of directing gigs for Nimoy followed the great success of The Search for Spock. Now, The Search for Spock in the theater, it grossed just under $16.7 million on its opening weekend. It actually debuted. At number one, and it beat out a couple of other films on that weekend Streets of Fire and Once Upon a Time in America. There was also a film that was a holdover in theaters at the time that you may have heard of before a little flick called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
and Star Trek III beat Indiana Jones out as well to debut there at number one. In the end, The Search for Spock went on to gross $76.5 million domestically, which was about $2.5 million less than what The Wrath of Khan brought in, but was still, it was a good take at the time. I mean, it's it's not a number that compares to what the J.J. Abrams movies are bringing in, but of course you also have to adjust all this stuff for inflation as well. The Wrath of Khan, The Search for Spock, The Voyage Home, they did pretty well. And, you know, The Voyage Home was the biggest grossing Star Trek film for many, many years. Now, in their commemorative article on StarTrek.com, they point out a number of bits of trivia and just interesting things about The Search for Spock. And a couple of the things they point out here that I did want to share with you are the fact that Harv Bennett's original 20-page outline for The Search for Spock was titled Return to Genesis. And also, Christopher Lloyd, who played Krug, or Kruge, was, for me, always an odd choice. These days, I think that most people, when they think of Christopher Lloyd, they probably think of Doc Brown in the Back to the Future films. That might be the first place. He also was on Taxi, which is a show I mentioned here on Hyper Channel yesterday. And I had really thought of Christopher Lloyd as being a comedic person because of that when The Search for Spock came out. And that's what I was used to seeing him as. And so I I thought it was kind of odd. And as the years have gone by, I have always continued to have a little bit of trouble with him in the role of the villain as a Klingon here in The Search for Spock. It's okay, it works for me well enough, but I'm not sure that it's really the best casting. Nothing against Christopher Lloyd. I'm just thinking about the casting of a Klingon villain in the movie. Well, as it turns out, Christopher Lloyd was not the first choice to play Krug. They actually wanted Edward James Olmos, who everyone knows now as Adama from the remake of Battlestar Galactica, a role that he plays brilliantly and which I think is one of the things that makes Ronald D. Moore's reboot of Battlestar Galactica work so well. That's who they wanted to be the villain in this movie, but apparently the executives at the studio at Paramount vetoed that idea, and so almost did not get in there, and Christopher Lloyd got the job instead. There's a lot of other things that are pointed out in this article on StarTrek.com, so I'll put a link in the show notes to that so you can go over and read it. They have a lot of pictures in there as well, and let me know what you remember about the premiere of Star Trek Three. I'd like to know if you were around when the movie premiered, if you were old enough to remember going to the theater and seeing it. And for like me, you know, was this something that you did with your parents or with your grandparents? What were your expectations going into the movie after having seen Spock die at the end of the previous film? And how did you feel? when we got Spock back, when you saw the events unfolding in the movie. And if you didn't see it in the theater, tell me about the first time you did see the movie. And were you surprised going in? Did you you know Spock was going to be coming back? Or were you wondering what was going to happen in the next movie? Hit me up on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can also find the network account there, TrekFM is the username. I tweet from there, as do many other hosts on the network. Now, one thing that was really important in the search for Spock, which allowed Kirk 
and the crew to escape the Enterprise when they had to blow it up is teleportation. They had to be able to beam down to Genesis. Now, if you're like me, you wish this technology were real. Maybe you hate to travel, and I'm not talking about the part where you visit new and exciting places or family and friends who live far away, but the part where you have to sit on an airplane for five hours or you have to get in the car and drive 12 hours across the country if you live in a big country like the United States. I love going to new places. I hate traveling. I hate flying on an airplane. I'm not scared of flying. I just hate the process of, it's mainly the airport. It's getting on the plane. Once I'm on the plane and I can escape the worries of daily life and I can just read a book for, for, for well, for me in Japan, like going between the US and Japan, it's typically like 13 hours, but it's an escape for me. It's exhausting, but it's an escape. I wish I could just beam places. If I could beam somewhere, I would be traveling all the time. So many places I want to go. Well, it seems that there is nothing in the laws of physics stopping us from doing this. All we need is some technological and scientific advancement, along with a lot of patience, because it isn't happening anytime soon. But scientists at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands are proving that it is, in fact, possible to teleport. And they say that it could become a reality in the far future. Now, if you've been keeping up with the possibilities of Star Trek technology for many years, going back to Lawrence Krauss's book, The Physics of Star Trek, which was a very interesting book when it came out in the mid-1990s, but of course the technology that we have now is very different than what we had then. And things that seemed impossible at the time don't seem quite so impossible to us today. There's an article in The Telegraph today where they actually talk to these scientists from Delft University of Technology, and they've conducted an experiment, and this isn't the first time that I've heard about this. This is a new experiment, but they've been working on this for some time, and they're proving that it actually is possible. And it all comes down to quantum entanglement, which is something that you may know about as a Star Trek fan. It's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. What it is basically is just the fact that in quantum mechanics, you can have two particles that are separated from each other by great distance. They could be separated from each other from, say, here in Tokyo, where I am, to New York, where maybe you are listening to this. Or it could be here on Earth, And the other particle could be on the other side of the universe. But yet these two particles somehow, by the properties of quantum mechanics, are entangled with one another. And they actually can share properties regardless of how far away they are. So what happens in a nutshell here is that you can transfer the property of one particle to its corresponding particle, the particle that it is entangled with, at a great distance. And by doing that, you can theoretically transfer an object or even a person. Because if you take all the information that describes that object or all the information that describes us as a person, and you transfer that to a group of particles far away, well, you're just simply moving, you're you're moving the information 
that describes the object of the person to the new location and recreating them there. This is essentially how the transporters in Star Trek work. In fact, it may very much be how the transporters in Star Trek work, because one way of looking at beaming in Star Trek is that you're actually killing the person and you're recreating them somewhere else. So everyone steps on the transporter pad on the Enterprise and they die. And the information that describes them is stored and it's transmitted to the surface of the planet that they're orbiting and they're recreated there as new people again out of new matter, but but with the properties that describe them. It's kind of scary if you think about it. Now, now there's controversy over whether or not this is how it works, but that's one way of looking at it. And what they're describing here in these experiments is pretty much that. The experiment described in the article in The Telegraph is one conducted by Professor Robert Hansen at the aforementioned Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And what they've done is that they have actually teleported information encoded into subatomic particles between two points three meters apart with 100% reliability. And I think that's important because if we are going to beam ourselves places in the future, you know, you don't want to show up with one ear or, you know, blonde hair instead of brown hair or some oddity like that. You want to be yourself when you get there. It's really interesting to me. He says that we have shown that it's possible to do this and it works every time that you try. Now, if you want to get really technical about it, go read the article. They go into some elements of quantum mechanics. They go into qubits, which are the quantum equivalent of bits in a computer. So in a computer, information is represented by ones or zeros, right? Everyone knows this. In quantum computing, everything can be either one or a zero at the same time. And and it's what you call qubits. And it gets very technical. But what they're describing here with teleportation is the same principle that people who are trying to build quantum computers describe. There was also another article today about D-Wave, which is a Canadian company that's building commercial quantum computers. And whether or not these are truly quantum computers or not is up in the air. But it's something they've been working on for a number of years, and they just had a new breakthrough. And there's actually um, a peer-reviewed study that has found that there actually is quantum entanglement taking place inside these D-Wave processors. So there's a great connection between these two stories. It's, It's really fascinating if you're into Star Trek technology and what might be possible in the future. So I know this is a lot to wrap your head around, and I'm not pretending that I completely understand this stuff either because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist, but I find it fascinating. I read books on this all the time. I have for years and years and years. And somehow in my brain, even though I actually don't understand the mathematics of it or the intricacies of it, it somehow washes over me as if it's something that I do kind of understand, maybe because I've watched so much Star Trek. But it's really fascinating to think that in the far future, like in the Star Trek future, this stuff could really be a reality. I actually think it might be. And what I'd like to know from you is, do you think we'll ever be able to transport objects? And what about people? And if you could step into a transporter and beam to another location instantly, would you do it? Especially after what I just described, when it could be viewed as killing you and 
recreating you somewhere else. I don't know if I'd do it as much as I would like to be able to instantly go somewhere. But who knows? If, as Professor Hansen says here, it works every single time, maybe I'd try it. I'll put a link in the show notes to the article in the Telegraph, and you can go read that, and that will also help you move on to other sources of information if you want to find out even more about this. And again, let me know what you think about it. I do have a network update for you to close out the show here. It's Sunday, which normally means literary treks, but Matthew and I are taking a week off from the show. So if you're looking for some books and comics talk, we don't have anything new for you today. But be sure to look through our back catalog, which is filled with interviews from the biggest authors in Star Trek literature. And on our most recent show from last week, we are joined by Keith DeCandido to get the inside story behind the Klingon art of war. And you'll find all of these past episodes in your feeds right now if you subscribe to the individual feed for Literary Treks. And you'll find most of the recent episodes, the last two or three anyway, in the Trek FM Complete Master Feed. You can also catch it through your favorite podcast source, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Swell, BlackBerry, SoundCloud. We're pretty much everywhere. Just look up Trek.afilm or the name of the show you want to listen to, and you should find us there. And you can also stream from the website, of course, using the SoundCloud player, or you can get the RSS link and drop that into your favorite third-party podcast catcher. Well, that's our look at news for today. If you're streaming the show from our website, remember that you can have it delivered to the device of your choice by subscribing to the Hyper Channel show feed or to the Trek Film Complete Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show that we do. And there will be some special audio content going into that feed as well. And as I mentioned, I'd love to chat with you about these stories or anything in the world of Star Trek. If you want to talk to me directly, my username is C. Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. Twitter is the best place to reach me, but you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. And then the network account on Twitter is TrekFM. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash TrekFM. On Google+, we have a community. Just search G communities for Trek.fm and you'll find us there. We have traditional forums on our website as well at Trek.fm slash forums. And you can send us voicemail using the SpeakPipe widget on our website. You'll see it there in the sidebar. Just click that, record a message using your built-in microphone, and you can upload it to us right there from the page. Well, thanks for listening again today, everyone. I hope your weekend's going well. And until tomorrow, when I'll be back with some more stories, go watch some tracks.